Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. All right, so we'll um, get into some of the history and myth uh, and uh, see if there's some teachings in there for us, some significance, the Buddha's early life, pre-Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. But uh, first, let's meditate together. So find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. Allowing our eyes to be gently closed, our body to be free from tension. Establishing an inner attitude of friendliness, of kindness, acceptance. Mindfulness is present time, non-judgmental awareness of all that is arising in this present moment. The thoughts and emotions, sensations, sense impressions. Mindfulness is inclusive of our whole being. So we establish mindfulness starting with the body, first foundation, and then we'll expand to the mind, to the sense doors. But for the first few minutes, just gathering your attention by Focusing on the sensations of your own breath. The Buddha's straightforward and simple instruction, breathing in, one knows I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows, is aware, present with the sensations that the breath creates. Although we will expand to include everything, start by giving priority, bringing the sensations of the breath to the foreground of your attention, the focus. 
Let the thoughts be in the background, the sounds, other sensations. If you're new to this kind of practice, it can be useful to note in as you breathe in, out as you exhale. It can help you stay focused, track the experience, help you to ignore what the mind is doing by giving the mind a task, tracking the breath. When you begin to think about the future or the past, just name it as thinking, note it, thinking mind, remembering, planning. Then come back to the breath gently with acceptance, non-judgment. Return to the body upright. And all of the sensations, the rising and falling of the abdomen, the expanding and contracting of the chest, <coughs> and the sensation of air entering and exiting the nostrils.
connecting and sustaining the attention with the breath, returning as often as necessary, disengaging from the contents of the thinking mind, returning to the direct experience of the body breathing. Begin by ignoring the mind, paying attention to the body. And beginning to expand from the narrow focus on the breath to become more embodied, more inclusive, letting your awareness investigate the whole body, sensations in the head and face, and arms and legs. Front and back.
feeling this body that we're just reflecting on this body that was born however many years, decades ago, that has changed so much subject to aging. Right now, the body feels like this, these sensations. Present now. This human body, this incarnated form of sensation and emotion, the sense doors of hearing, seeing, smelling, and tasting. Awareness, mindfulness, nose, sound, sight, smell, taste, sensation. And the mind thinks, generating emotion, hope and fear, doubt and worry, craving and aversion. So we include the mind rather than ignoring it or trying to stop it, turning our awareness, mindfulness of the mind. As thoughts arise, and proliferate. Turn your attention towards what your mind is doing right now. Is it active or calm? What kind of mood is present, attitude? with non-judgmental, accepting, kind awareness of what is right now.
Allow your awareness to be open and inclusive, spacious, choiceless, rather than choosing what you pay attention to. Allow the mindfulness go wherever it's drawn. If there's a strong sensation in the body that's calling for your attention, allow your attention to go to that sensation and investigate it. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? If the mind is active and loud, perhaps letting the mindfulness investigate those thoughts. Are they plans or memories? Hopes or fears, worries? Are they pleasant or unpleasant or perhaps neutral thoughts that the mind is thinking. Bringing the intention of mercy and compassion to all of the unpleasant experiences, whether it's sound or sensation or thought, emotion. The intention to be friendly and compassionate towards our own discomfort.
Mindfulness reveals the impermanent nature of every thought, every sensation, every emotion arising and passing. Even when the mind says this is going to last forever, mindfulness reveals the constantly changing nature of even the most unpleasant sensation or emotion. And as we investigate the mind and body, it becomes more and more clear that so much of what's happening is impersonal. The mind just judging and fearing and craving all by itself. the last couple of minutes letting go of any effort and just accepting this moment just as it is this mind body heart with an attitude of loving kindness our own wish for ease and freedom 
for contentment, happiness, well-being. Extending the same wish for well-being, for ease and freedom to the people sitting near you, the people you spoke to this evening as we started. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. Extending this wish outward to the whole Sangha gathered here in the room, at home, all over the country, all over the planet. To the east and west, north and south, above, below, until we include all living beings. With loving kindness, with compassion, with appreciation, may all beings experience true happiness, contentment, well-being. May all beings be at ease, experience peace. May all beings be free from the causes of suffering, the clinging, the craving, the aversion, the delusional self-centeredness that causes suffering. So here we are practicing uh, this meditation technique that was created by this guy 2,600 years ago or so. I think it's 2,556 or 2,565, I don't know, something like that. 
round it off to 26, 2550 something. It's hard to tell because um, the way Buddhism tracks the Buddha is that he was born, enlightened, and died all on the same day, but 80 years, like he, he was born on the full moon in, depending on what tradition, May, I think, April, May, June, depending on if you're looking at the Theravada or the Mahayana or the, and then he was enlightened on the full moon in that same month. And then he died on the full moon in that same month. You know, again, religion sort of like, well, let's just throw it all in there together. And supposedly lived 80 years, which may, may be true, but seems like a really fucking long time for ancient India. When, you know, tw you know, as we know, like just a couple hundred years ago, life expectancy was 60, <laughs> and, you know, or whatever it was. And, and back then, I, I, it's hard to believe that people were living to be 80 years old. And especially this guy that was homeless, wandering, sleeping on the ground his whole life, never having dinner, um, you know, not, uh, I mean, I'm sure he had access to whatever medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. And, you know, he was a, a popular person once he became enlightened. And so I'm sure he had access. He, had, he was friends with a lot of wealthy people who I'm sure supplied whatever uh, medicine was available at the time, but. The backstory, uh, I think it's a little bit interesting to look at like, okay, uh, 20, what was happening on this planet 2,600 years ago? Um, and the Buddha was born into a time that, uh, the same time, I think, you know, some of the Greek, like maybe it's Plato. I don't know if there's any Western scholars, in, but like, like maybe like what's happening in Greece is there like Greek philosophy is, is coming in the West. And in, uh, in China, Taoism is uh, right, right at the same time. So there's something happening on the planet where wisdom and contemplation and we're moving out of the hunter-gatherer into the agrarian. Uh, there's abundance. Not not everyone is, um, you know. Some have abundance, and you know they're planting and they're they're um, you know there's crops and there's livestock and there's there's enough going on that you're not just you know some people aren't just so worried about survival every day that actually have time to start contemplating what the fuck are we doing here. What is this all about and why are we suffering? Why is life so challenging? And so, you know, the, the Europeans, the Greeks come up with some of their, you know, thoughts about it. And the, um, in China, you know, the Tao, Taoism uh, gets developed. And in India, Northern India, um, well, it's actually Nepal. It was, at that time, it was just sort of this South Asia, um, one big, uh, you know, kind of before the borders were drawn, uh, the, the Buddha was born into Lumbini, which is Southern Nepal, but it was all sort of connected to the uh, uh, Northern Gan Gangetic, the Ganges Plain, where there was um, 
there was abundance and there was, uh, you know, it goes the, the um, Silk Road, the trade routes were going through there where, you know, they're bringing stuff from Europe and uh, all the way through, you know, trade routes th up to China through Northern India and kind of around the base of the Himalayas in that way. As the story goes, and again, like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of myth. There's a lot of religious exaggeration and um, that I personally just can't buy into. You know? I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's all true, but a lot of it seems impossible. And when things seem impossible, I'm pretty quick to be like, well, that's, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> that magic uh, doesn't sound right, you know. Um, but as the story goes, the um, Siddhartha's parents, Siddhartha's the Buddha's given name, um, were it, often it's said that his father was a king, and you know, and his mother was you know the 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 queen. Um, and that they had all of these palaces and that, and so when you get the idea of like a king and the queen palaces and, um, you know, I don't know what, you, what your sort of mental image or, or connotations or associations with a kingdom. But my sense is, and, and part of this comes from like, uh, I don't know if any of you have read uh, uh, Stephen Batchelor's um, Buddhist Atheist where a bachelor who's a Buddhist teacher who I, I like, I appreciate his work a lot. And he, um, he got so interested in like, what can, what's actually true about Buddhism? And what do we know is that he kind of went to the archeologists and, the, and um, who went to Lumbini to try to find the, these palaces that, that are talked about. And what they found out was that there was no, at 2,600 years ago, there wasn't even bricks or there was the technology for bricks, but there was none in that area. And so we're talking about palaces that are made out of mud and straw. They found the foundations, right? They dug down however many feet they needed to, to find the foundations to say, is this, you know, because historically like this is true, but how much of it is exaggerated from the truth? And so they found, um, so if you think of, I don't know if you've ever been to, you know what Adobe buildings are? Like if you've ever been to the Southwest where you can build really amazing buildings out of mud. And they're, you know, and they're impressive. Like, you know, like the Native American Adobe, uh, um, but they're not the castle. Like when I think of castles, I'm thinking of stones and bricks and these massive sort of like, you know, European, and it's like, no, that's not what was going on there. This were like adobe buildings, castles made out of mud, made out of ancient, you know, building techniques. And so, and also Lumbini, it didn't, doesn't sound like was all that big of a, or powerful of a, and so maybe rather than thinking like of a, born into like a king of a kingdom, more like, his dad was the mayor of a village <laughs> or something like that. But, there, you know, there, there was privilege. There was, you know, abundance for what was going on there. But 
this story of the Buddha was a prince and was extra wealthy may not be may as, as true as we have come to believe, but that he was born into some level of privilege and some level of abundance and some level of access to um, you know, pleasure and uh, good food and um, you know, was, was not poor. And that his father, who was a warrior and, you know, kings in this time, you know, like all kings, I think of all time, you become the king by murdering people and, you know, having being a warrior and fighting the, you know, the neighbors and protecting your kingdom and, you know, expanding your kingdom. There's a lot of that happening at the time where they're warring factions. And, you know, and later in the Buddha's life, there's all of these different wars that are going on with the different neighborhoods, the different kingdoms, the different villages. And his father was the, you know, king. And um, just when his, when his mom got pregnant, they had astrologers come, as is the tradition, kind of like what's, what's in store for this pregnancy and for this child. And, and the astrologers, you know, came and they said, and they kind of tell you the future and what's going to happen. And, um, and the astrologer says, you know, this child, this is going to be a powerful child. And either kind of like, not quite sure, but either like a really powerful king, like the ruler of the world, like a, he's going to be a conqueror of some kind. And either going to be like this conqueror of the world, the material plane, or maybe he's going to be a conqueror of the conqueror of the self, a, a, a great teacher, a great sage, a saint. And the, the Buddha's father, Siddhartha's father, um, gets quite concerned. And he's like, I don't want my son to be some hippie meditator. I want my son to be a badass warrior. So let's um, shelter him from the realities of the world that might lead one to becoming a warrior, to becoming a um, or to becoming a spirit, a meditator. Let's shelter, shelter him from, uh, spiritual teachings and, and, um, let's hide, let's try to hide sickness and aging and death, because those are the kind of things that start making you question. You start waking up to like sickness and aging and death. Uh, you might start saying like, well, what is this all about? If we're just going to get old and die. And so that the, um, the king, you know, this prophecy of, um, so even before he was born, they, they had this kind of commitments to sheltering Siddhartha. I was looking at the suttas, the, the ancient scriptures earlier, and it was talking about how um, when his mom was pregnant with him, um, she, because he was this pure being in her womb, was uh, purified by his presence in her womb. And that um, she automatically could no longer uh, take life of any living being, say anything that wasn't true, um, take anything that wasn't freely offered, that, you know, the five precepts were just like bestowed upon her when as soon as Siddhartha was in her 
belly. And uh, she, ha she had this purity of conduct. And it's interesting because it's, it almost alludes to like before she was pregnant, she could have lied. She was lying and stealing and cheating. And, and uh, but now she's pregnant, like no more lying or stealing or uh, no intoxicants, you know, like the five precepts all of a sudden are her natural way of being. She couldn't even lie if she wanted to because she has this future you know, wonderful, uh, intelligent, wise being in her belly. And it's, it's a, you know, no, she couldn't. And, you know, this must have, you know, if, if whatever, again, I think this is sort of religious stuff, but if it were true, it also said she could not even have a sensual thought, no lust. And it's like, you know, oh, I'm pregnant, you're not getting laid at all, no more lust, um, no more sex. And, and there is a thing that Buddhism can do around sex, around kind of making it like it's not pure, it's not holy, it's not, you know, um, an enlightened being wouldn't even want to have sex. It's like, it's too base, it's too, it's too, uh, uh, it's gross. <laughs> Uh, rather than natural and beautiful. When it was time when, you know, she had carried the, the Buddha to um, term and it was time to, to give birth, there were some complications in the birth. Now, one of the ways that this is said, and I think this is misogyny, you know how like Jesus is born to a virgin? There's a similar thing here in Buddhism where she wasn't a virgin, but um, at birth, rather than a natural, you know, birth canal, uh, you know, birth, he it said that he stepped from her side. <laughs> and then stood up and took seven steps. I forget what direction to the east or west or whatever spiritual direction took seven steps. Oh, and there was a white parasol, I believe. Again, the image, this like newborn standing naked and he points and he says, I'm going to be a Buddha, something like that. Um, and the Buddha's mother, Queen, I forget her name right now, Siddhara. I forget her name, um, died in childbirth, which would happen if you stepped out of your mother's <laughs> side. You would kill her. Um, well, you know, and probably like if there's some truth to this difficult uh, birth, um, cesarean, you know, kind of had to, you know, uh, cut the bit, you know, cesarean section, whatever the ancient equivalent to that is, you know, complicated birth and she died in childbirth. And um, there's a book that the Buddhist psychologist, Mark uh, Epstein wrote called Everyday Trauma, where he was trying to look at maybe what was the Buddha's trauma. And he uh, kind of, I think he's, you know, he's saying like, birth trauma. He, you know, the, Mark is trying to make this argument like we are all traumatized. Every single one of us, including the enlightened Buddha, had some trauma. 
And um, birth trauma is a real thing. You know, not that we remember it, but if you're born into that kind of situation, that kind of, you know, death of your parents at birth. And so the Buddha's mom doesn't make it. And she has a sister. I don't know if it's a twin sister or it's a sister. And so the sister, you know, as, as is the tradition, if you're the king and your wife dies, then you take the sister for your new wife. And so uh, Siddhartha is then raised by his father and his aunt. His aunt becomes his mom and raises him as, as her own child. And And there's not a lot. There's only a few stories in the suttas. There's a lot of kind of anecdotal stories um, of the Buddhist childhood, but there's a few times attributed directly to him where he talks about his childhood. And he talks about, he says, you know, I was a very like a delicate child. And um, I was like sensitive and delicate and sheltered. And um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have the kind of normal, I didn't have a child, normal childhood because I was so coddled and um, so, you know, protected from reality. And uh, he does have one, there's some stories about he's got a cousin that he does grow up with who um, is kind of uh, bullies him a little bit. And his cousin, and he's like this naturally, you know, the way the story goes, he's this naturally compassionate, empathetic, loving kid who, um, but, and his cousin's kind of a bully. Like there's a story of like when he's a kid and his cousin, they're, they're practicing bow and arrow. And this is interesting that uh, because his father was the king, and even though supposedly they're trying to protect him, he's still trained in uh, some weapons like bows and arrows and spears. And he, he's trained in some kind of warrior training on some level. And at one point they're practicing shooting and his uh, cousin uh, Devadatta shoots a bird and wounds the bird. And, and Siddhartha is very empathetic. And he's like, why are you, why would you do that? Why would you kill an animal? And just, there's this natural compassion and Devadatta's, you know, mean and bullying. And there's one scene in the Buddha's childhood that comes later when he's seeking enlightenment, where he says when he was, I think it's like around seven years old or something, and he was at a festival with his father and and his parents, and they were doing some sort of ritual plowing of the fields or something like that. And he said, I just had some sort of free time and I went and sat underneath this tree. And I just like fell into a perfect equanimity, uh, an experience of mindfulness, an experience of contentment, of just like everything was all right, just the way it was. And everything was sort of, I was just at ease, just spontaneously peaceful internally. And it didn't last. And later when he goes to seek awakening, he reflects on, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that kind of experience that I had at seven years old, where I was content, where I was at ease with what is, because that quickly left. 
and I wasn't able to regain it. And I, as the older I got, the more craving I had and the more aversion I had and the more self-centered I was. And, um, and I want to return to that simple peace. I'm looking for that kind of contentment and ease and well-being that happened when I was seven years old. So he grows up and um, is sheltered. And it said, he said, you know, I had three palaces and one for the rains and one for the uh, spring and one for the fall in a summer, winter, fall, or uh, winter, spring and fall, kind of three seasons is the way it's talked about. And, um, and he says, at one point I, um, when I was kind of old enough, especially during the rains retreat, I were on the kind of upper level of the palace and I was only surrounded by beautiful women and there was not any men anywhere. And there's these images of um, kind of almost orgies that he was involved in once he had kind of came of age and was sexual and, you know, all of the pleasures and all of the, um, you know, that there was sort of harems that he was subjected to or indulging in. And, um, and there's an image later where he is at some kind of orgy and he wakes up and everyone else is asleep and naked and drooling and snoring and farting. And, and he wakes up and he's like, this is disgusting. All of these bodies that are just bodies and just drooling, farting, snoring, you know, this is what we lust after. And, you know, there's a little kind of judgment in that, but in his own mind, he just kind of uh, had some awakening to this is not the source of happiness. Sex is not the solution. This kind of objectifying the way that we look at each other's bodies, uh, just not, it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a deeper understanding, a deeper sense of peace. He is married. Um, there's an, you know, in this arranged marriage in his early 20s. And, you know, I believe that he's, you know, this sort of power brokering marriage that the kings and the wealthy do of like, well, you got to marry this person from this family because it'll be good for our family. And, um, and, and his wife gets pregnant. And just, I think, you know, the culture, because later, you know, the Buddha leaves his wife and child, but I always feel like it's important to reflect on um, the difference between like a love marriage commitment and an arranged marriage. And can you imagine if you were just like 19 or whatever, and your parents just said, you're marrying this person that you've never met, whether you like it or not? Yeah, some, some may, maybe some in... in Pretty rare, though. I mean, maybe back then they did that, even in your grandparents. My grandparents were in arrangement. Arrangement. Yeah. And to this day, it happens in some cultures. But I, I, I just have such a Western kind of view of like, no, no, you fall in love and you choose your partner. And, and so here's Siddhartha, just kind of like, this is your person. And, and they 
consummate the marriage and she gets pregnant and and he really starts to question like what am i doing like what am i doing here and is there more to life and uh at some point right around this time he uh figures out that he's been sheltered and that he's not allowed to go in town without the royal you know guards and all of that stuff and he sneaks out and he has his attendant sneak him out and you know dress in you know rags or whatever so he can sneak out of the the castle and and he sees an old person for the first time in his life and this also again doesn't make that much sense because aren't his parents old but maybe they're not that old because he's 20 and his parents are 40. Um, so, but he sees like an elderly person with gray hair and sagging skin and, you know, walking with a, you know, cane or something like that. And his mind is blown. He's never seen someone that old in his life. Never saw anybody uh, decrepit. And he asks his attendant, like, the fuck happened to that person? And his attendant says, well, you know, Sid, that's just an old person. And Sid says, is that going to happen to me? And of course, the answer is, yeah, that happens. If you don't die, that happens to all of us. Your elasticity of your skin goes and you, you know, your posture goes and you, uh, and you get old and decrepit and slow and uh, it happens. And then, and then he sees... Uh, someone very like a diseased person, maybe a leper or, you know, some kind of obvious disease, illness, um, you know, a dying person. And he says, is that going to happen to me? And of course, the answer is, yeah, that's could happen to you. Like uh, aging and sickness is a natural part of our existence. But can you imagine not knowing about that? And then as an adult, finding out, and death also had been hidden and he saw a corpse. And these are called the, the, the four heavenly messengers because he sees a corpse and he says, oh my God, I'm gonna die. And then is also taught reincarnation. Not only are you gonna die, you're gonna come back and do this over and over and over. So sickness, aging, death. And then the fourth heavenly messenger, which sends him on his quest, is he sees a monk, he sees a meditator. He meets um, you know, somebody who is dedicating that's in the robes and you know, has the whatever bald head or, or dreadlocks or whatever they have, uh, whatever the meditation fashion of that person is, and asks his attendant, what's that person up to? And he says, well, that person is looking for the solution to sickness, aging, and death. That person is looking for enlightenment is is looking for for liberation and that's the kind of seed that is planted in siddhartha and he says okay i don't i'm i don't want to be a king i don't i don't want to be uh you know i don't want to be in this world i want to wake up i want to find out why we are and you know and and that kind of existential crisis of like i have everything but i'm not that happy I have all of the pleasure and all of the power and all of the privilege and all of the, and no matter, you know, it's all transient. Like there's not, it's, 
you know, no matter how much sex I have, it's not satisfying. No matter how much power, how much pleasure, there's not a, a sense of satisfaction. I don't feel at ease. I feel dissatisfied. And so it's at that time where he makes the decision to go on a spiritual quest, to leave, go forth, to leave home, and to leave his wife and child and parents and uh, inheritance and to just walk away from all of it. And I wonder what the, um, you know, what your own reflection is uh, on your own path to practice, your own, uh, so many of myself and so many of our community come from a place of addiction and the suffering of addiction that got us willing enough to start meditating. And it doesn't feel like, well, we were just dissatisfied with all of the privilege that we had. So we started meditating. I was like, no, no, I felt like I was dying and I was suffering so much and I was desperate enough to start meditating. I didn't do it just because like, you know, like this story of, of his life where it feels like, but it, I, I like the, um, I like the story of starting from a place of knowing that the material stuff doesn't work. <clears throat> and some people in our community are there and, you know, some of us became addicts or, you know, because the material stuff doesn't work. And then, you know, so, and some people come to the practice because, you know, you, you got what you thought would make you happy and you realized it didn't make you happy. I mean, I feel like so, in some level, um, as an addict, I thought if I just stopped using, I'd be okay. If I could just get sober, then I'd be happy, right? Because it's the drugs, it's the addiction that is causing all of my su suffering. So if I could just get clean, then I'll be happy. And then I got clean and all of my suffering was still there and maybe even worse on some level because there was no distraction from it. So the dissatisfaction led me to meditation of like, I gotta do something about it. There's gotta be a solution because just not getting high wasn't enough. So he leaves and he seeks out spiritual teachers and he finds the um, most reputable meditation teachers he can find. And the first teacher he joins with teaches him a meditation technique that leads him to that he, you know, as the story goes, he quickly um, perfects this meditation technique. And it's some kind of concentration based technique that leads him to these states of uh, emptiness, temporary, uh, blissful, 
no body, no mind, emptiness. And as he goes to the uh, back to the guru, back to the teacher and says, I, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. Am I doing it right? And the teacher's like, yes, you got it. And he says, but it wears off when I'm not meditating. <laughs> He's like, yeah, that's all I can teach you. And uh, he said, well, I'm not looking for it. That's not, I'm looking for a real solution, not just a temporary meditation-based avoidance technique, which is what you've taught me, which is this really cool thing when I'm deeply concentrated and I experience all this bliss, but that's, I'm, I'm not, that's not uprooting my craving. It's just allowing me to ignore my craving. It's not uprooting my aversion or my self-centeredness. That's just meditating myself into a temporary oblivion. And so he, he says, I, I'm, you know, I'm going I'm to keep going. I'm going to keep searching, keep seeking. And comes to another teacher who teaches him a similar concentration meditation. And again, and I, I love that um, he rejects it. And I love that he had whatever confidence, whatever... Uh, inner resource that wasn't willing, because both of these gurus uh, that he met said, um, you got it. And like, we can lead this community together. The guru business is really good. And we can teach all of these students and, you know, and the Buddha said, I'm not looking for power and prestige and the guru business. I'm looking for freedom and you're not teaching freedom. More what you've offered, you know, has not led me to freedom. And then he goes off and spends years practicing asceticism, practicing in the forest, living naked, practicing these incredibly intense um, renunciation practices, fasting for weeks and uh, not laying down and, uh, you know, standing up for weeks or months and, you know, these vows, the, all of these like intense ascetic renunciation practices where he has this sense of the craving is coming from this body. The aversion is coming from this body. So if I defy this body, if I stop feeding it, if I stop obeying the body's desires, maybe that will break me free from the cause of my suffering, the clinging, the aversion, the uh, self-centeredness. And he spends all of these years uh, practicing asceticism. And I'll pause there for tonight and then next week pick up there towards the end of his practice of asceticism and into his discovery of mindfulness that leads to his liberation. So a um, few more minutes, if there's any questions or comments about tonight's story time. I'll just, you know, um, as I'm saying, I think that some of this, some of the stories are exaggerated and myth and religious, you know, embellishment, but um, what is true is that Siddhartha was a human being that was born 
in, in Lumbini and in Southern Nepal and uh, created mindfulness that led to his, his freedom. And this is the story of kind of leading up to that. And we'll carry that on next week. Please, Chris. A quick question for I don't know if you know the answer to this. Uh, I love this book by a friend of ours called Siddhartha. Is there any loose correlation whatsoever to like what you're talking about? Or is it total creative liberty inside a totally different story? The latter, total creative liberties. Uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, which is a great book, and you know it's the doorway, kind of gateway to Buddhism for a lot of people. But what Hesse did was he took the Buddha's name Siddhartha and created a fictional character who meets the Buddha and rejects the Buddha. Because remember, there's that thing where Siddhartha is this spiritual kid, and then he goes off, and him and his friend, and his friend becomes a Buddhist. He's like, "Hey, I met this enlightened saint." And Siddhartha was like, no, I'm going to go get drunk and gamble and, you know, fall in love with the hooker and, you know, like do that whole thing. And then come around to his own simple awakening as the ferryman, right? Sorry for any of you who haven't read it. Total gave away the whole spoiler. Um, So it's totally fictional with Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, as a small character in it and then the main character siddhartha rejecting buddhism and then becoming a buddha later on you know which which is sort of a beautiful story and there is that that kind of like rather than becoming a buddhist become a buddha which is the kind of core of that and uh also sort of what we're doing here as the anti-buddhists buddhists Yeah. It's hard to to tell. The question is, you know, Buddhism and Taoism, uh, and I'm not scholarly enough to really know, but um, later Taoism includes a lot of Buddhist stuff. Like in, in China, like Chinese Buddhism is a mixture of Taoism and Confucianism and Indian Buddhism. Right. And so like you, you, a lot of the Buddhist stuff in China has a lot of Taoist influence. Um, But so they, at some point there was some interaction 2,600 years ago, the Taoist stuff is happening in China and the Buddha is happening in India and they don't have any interaction yet. And it's around the same time. And, you know, Taoism doesn't have a founder. There's not somebody, you know, not like Buddhism, where we have Siddhartha Gautama that created the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. There's no one person who created Taoism. It was like a whole bunch of poets. It was like a movement um, of people that were doing nature-based, yin-yang, balanced uh, teachings of living in harmony with the natural world. But there's not like one person who said, this is the Tao. As far that's from from what I'm told, but I'm not. I don't. There were a couple of major figures. Yes, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu and those guys, but they're not the creators, from what no, I understand. They're part of a they're part of a greater movement. But Lao Tzu often gets pointed at simply because of that book, right? Right. So that's, that's probably like the lead, first among 
Jesus or something. As, as a uh, commentator on Taoism, but not the creator, from what I understand. Please. Um, so my understanding, there are, are there, there are 28 recorded Buddhas uh -huh. of that nature. What is that? Or what, is, what are the qualifications? How am I going to know that I'm 29? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what does that mean? 28? I don't. I don't really know that, and that doesn't feel like a Theravadan. Did you hear that in Zen or in Tibetan Buddhism or Theravada? On Google. There is in so you know there's different schools of Buddhism in Theravadan Buddhism. There is a place where the Buddha says, "I am not the first. There have been previous." awakened Buddhas, but they're lost in history and there's no recorded history of them. Um, so Theravadan Buddhism doesn't say that there's, you know, we kind of have the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama and lots of arahants, enlightened beings. The definition of a Buddha in Theravadan tradition is, is a Buddha is somebody that comes to full awakening by themselves without a teacher. So if you or I become fully enlightened, we are not Buddhas, we are Arahants, enlightened beings. Because we had an instruction manual. Siddhartha had no instruction manual. He figured it out on his own. That's the definition of a Buddha and a self-awakened being that figured it out by themselves. We can get fully enlightened, but we're not figuring it out by ourselves because we have the map. Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. Here's what you do. Go for it. So I think the 28 is a Mahayana, maybe a Tibetan perspective, not a Theravadan perspective. So we'll end there. A quick announcement before I end. Um, I have a day long on Saturday, and this is a series of four uh, day longs I'm going to do this year um, about deepening your commitment to the path. And it's not going to be the traditional day long that I often do where it's just sitting and walking. I might schedule some of those this year, but these are going to be every three months or four months, however that works out. Um, day where we're going to do some meditation in the morning. We're going to talk about the five precepts, the three refuges. We'll do a precept and refuge ceremony. We'll also uh, include this um, uh, admission of where we haven't been holding the precepts and speak to each other and practice some equanimity and talk about karma and how we, you know, we, we take the precepts not as rules, but as our own training. And, um, and we'll have a meal together. It is a potluck kind of like bring your, we'll, we'll do potlucks when COVID is a little bit less. Right now, let's not share dishes. So bring your own food, but we'll eat together in the room and uh, people can do it on Zoom if you're at home. Um, I'll do the kind of hybrid thing like I'm doing tonight where there'll be some people in the room, some people at home. Uh, and then we'll have some meditation and a Dharma talk. And um, so it's not gonna be just sitting and walking meditation. There's gonna be some ritual and precepts and refuges and um, so please join me Saturday. It's at um, it's 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, you can register on the website if, um, 
there's a charge for it. And if you want to come and you can't afford it, you're welcome to come anyways. Nobody will be turned away for uh, inability to pay the, the fee for the day long. Uh, all are welcome. If you can afford it, pay for it. Help support the organization. Um, if you can't afford it, you're welcome. Don't let money get in the way of you participating in your practice. That's you know, commitment that I have here at Against the Stream is that all are welcome regardless of ability to pay. Um, so just maybe shoot us an email if you can't afford it and we'll give you a scholarship through the Against the Stream site. Um, any questions about the day long? I know Rory, you might've had a question. Was that enough explanation? Anybody else? Anything other than bringing lunch? No, bring, yeah, bring lunch and show up. Lunch and your good intentions, that's it. Bruckner? Yeah, are you gonna send out a special link for those days? Since uh, I'm definitely on Zoom, will we get a, a calendar with a, a Zoom link for that? Yeah, did you already register? Yes, yeah, for all four. Okay, yeah, if um, you haven't received it yet, I'll double check with Sebastian, um, but you you'll definitely receive it. Maybe he's sending it the day before or something like that, but I'll ask him and uh, make sure that you get uh, the link. Yeah, if you've registered for Zoom, you'll get the link. Great, okay, thanks. Yep. All right, so let's leave it there for tonight. Uh, class is done by donation. There's a bowl there if you wanna do cash donation. If you want to do um, uh, uh, PayPal or Venmo donations, you can do that. That's written on the desk there. Um, at home, you can uh, go to the website and there's a link. Uh, I saw that Jeff put the, the link in the chat so you can make a donation. Thank you. Many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion be shared with all beings everywhere. May each one of us do what needs to be done to get as free as possible. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks, and see you next week for the continuation of the epic saga. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.